0: I thought since we were reading the subject matter tonight, it would be well to sort of introduce something you already know, and that is the moral fabric of our country is eroding to the point that many of us have forgotten the roots from which we have come, or even the idea of morality and right and wrong. The lines that were once very definite have become fuzzy. I hold an article from Westminster, California. And it says, production is underway on a soap opera called Secret Passions with homosexual characters and storylines and will be marketed to cable TV stations, its producer says. It's going to be very realistic portrayal, producer David Gadbury said. We're going to show how it hurts. When two gays break up, we'll have kissing, people in bed together, but we're more suggestive than explicit. Gadbury says that the daytime serial will pull no punches despite its production in conservative Orange County, where voters in one city earlier this month rejected a gay rights ordinance. The show will be set in the imaginary city of Orangethorpe, Orange County. And the story will revolve around a recent real-life county events such as violent clashes over a homosexual pride festival in Santa Ana and Irvine, voters' removal of protection for homosexuals, and an anti-discrimination law. Now, listen to this part. The soap will also include a character named Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, a conservative minister who preaches that homosexuals are devils. I wonder who that could be, says Reverend Lewis Sheldon, an Evangelical Presbyterian minister who heads the Traditional Values Coalition. Sheldon said that the show is going to make the inner workings of his opponent's lifestyle regular TV fare. They're promoting the homosexual lifestyle if they're bringing a soap opera on cable television throughout the nation and the city, he said. Gadbury said he got the idea for the show about a year ago when a relationship ended. Gays are stereotyped in the media, he said. Now, what was interesting to me is how they will portray homosexuals and how they will, in contrast to that, portray Christian ministers. He just said that gays have been stereotyped. What's he doing with Christian ministers? He's going to try to make the Christian minister in the soap out to be a pinhead, a dimwit this guy who's blinded with religious fervor who doesn't think and doesn't contribute to the community so that everybody will find favor for the gays. Of course we could read articles like this ad nauseum; they're all over the place. But suffice it to say it's just another point of erosion in the moral fiber of this country. It happens slowly instead of instantly. The changes are occurring little by little as each day unfolds. And what that does, it produces a numbness. Where pretty soon people just say, well, it happens all the time, man. Just you can't fight it. And that's in fact, people say it's all right, it's okay. It's just an alternate lifestyle. And if you dare speak out against this form of wickedness, you will be branded, you will be labeled as narrow narrow-minded, a non-thinker. You're not contributing, but you are hindering society. In fact, you are the problem. You are the one, not anyone else. It's you Christians that are the problem. Remember the old story of the frog in the kettle? You put a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out. It knows it's hot. It has a, at least it has a brain. Put a frog in warm water, and slowly increase the heat and the frog will die. He'll boil to death if the heat rises gradually. The difference will not be noticeable because it's a gradual rise instead of a sudden rise. In metaphor, that's happening in our country. And you are a minority. If you are a Christian in love with Jesus Christ, and devoted to His Word and His ways, especially if you are an unashamed Christian to speak the truth, loving people, no matter if they're heterosexual, homosexual, but at the same time standing up for what is right. You are a minority. And more and more, beware, because you will be seen as the problem. Lot had already compromised his position in Sodom. And yet, there was such a difference between Lot and the Sodomites that Lot was the problem, according to them. Well, we're back in chapter 18, that was by way of introduction for the evening, not an appealing introduction perhaps, but an introduction nonetheless. But tonight we're going to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom, of course, is one of the most wicked cities ever mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned six times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament. It has become a proverb for wickedness and also for judgment. We don't know how Sodom got to be like it was. It seems that sometime in its history, it lost moral consciousness. And gradually they gave way to the lifestyles that we'll read about in chapter 19. It didn't happen suddenly, but it did happen. As we mentioned before, in fact, Thursday night, it is remarkable. That Sodom was destroyed by God only 450 years after the flood. A short period of time for mankind to remember that kind of judgment. And for that kind of a judgment to elapse from their memory. And then fall right back into that kind of perverse wickedness. There's a scripture in the book of Ezekiel that speaks about one of the problems with Sodom. That perhaps is the key to how it became this corrupt. Let me read it to you. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Pride, a lot to eat, and they sat around. An abundance of idleness. And they got fat and sassy. And they eroded spiritually from a position of perhaps once walking with God. And the Lord knows they had the witness, didn't they? They had God's grace extended to them already. Remember their past history. Remember when one of the five kings Sheder Leomar of Elam came with four allies, swept through the southern region of the Dead Sea, and captured the cities of the plain, including Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboim, and Zoar. Took them captive, made them slaves. Abraham came by God's grace with 318 armed servants and delivered the people of Sodom from slavery and brought them back to safety. They saw that. They saw God's grace. A man of God rescued them. Then they were able to witness the exchange between Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, and Abraham as he paid tithe. Then they were able to also watch their own king, the king of Sodom, as he said to Abraham, here, take some spoil for yourself. Just give me my people back. And Abraham said, no, lest anyone should say, you made Abraham rich. And so they had witness after witness, and still their heart became hardened. They lost any kind of moral absolute. They did what was right in their own eyes. That's recurrent, by the way. I don't know why it is, but human nature doesn't learn from the past. My history teacher, over and over again, I mean, every class, he would say, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to relive it. He was right. Because later on, the children of Israel, during the time of the judges, forsook the Lord. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they came from a place of moral absolutes to a place of moral existentialism. Hey man, you're your own judge. There's not one basis of right and wrong. There is no universal base of morality. You are your own judge. And if that's cool for you, Hey, that's cool for you. And what's cool for me may not be cool for you, but let's just be cool together. (laughs) Tolerance became the watchword instead of righteousness. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, uh, we're going to contrast, as I said, Abraham tonight and Lot. We mentioned at the beginning that Abraham was an example of a blessed man. In fact, God uses that word more of Abraham probably than anybody in the Old Testament. Abraham, who was Abram then, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a blessing. And in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. What a great promise. Now in contrast to him, we have Lot, who didn't live a blessed life. He lived a blasted life. He was frustrated, beat up, war-torn from the carnality of the world that he was indulging in. And he looked toward Sodom, longingly. Then he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Then he moved to Sodom. And in chapter 19, we see him as a gatekeeper in the city of Sodom, a man of prominence, one of the judges, the rulers of the city of Sodom. Which reminds me of Psalm 106, where it says, God granted them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. What a condition giving them their request, yet experiencing leanness spiritually. Oh, he had everything he wanted. Nice city, nice home. A man of prominence position, but spiritually he was weakened. He had a form of godliness, but he denied the power thereof. God sent leanness unto their souls. You know how it is that sometimes you will long and search for something. You pray for it over and over and over again. Oh God, I know that this is perfect for me. Please let me have it. Only to find out later when God says no, that God knew best all along. And you go, thank you, Lord, for not answering my prayer. That gorgeous, young, handsome athlete in high school. And you gals looked at him and thought, oh man, he's the one. Oh, God, please, let him just fall head over heels for me. Oh, man, that's a one. Oh, Lord, I know this is your will. And you see him at the high school reunion. You go, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> He's wearing the rainbow tie with a pot of gold at the end of it. Well, at least a pot at the end of it. I don't know about of gold, but i <laughs> tell you what, Father knows best. And Abraham knew that. And that's why he said to Lot, hey, take whatever you want. Take whatever portion of the land. I'll take whatever's left. For God had told him, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Hang with me, Abram. Let me fulfill your life. Don't look for fulfillment in all of these other things that the world has to offer. Let me protect you, and let me be your reward." Um, In the second part of chapter 18, verse 16, we begin, we see that Abram, at this time his name has been changed to Abraham, becomes a prayer warrior, an intercessor. And we remember that three visitors had come, and without rehashing it, one of them was the Lord, and two of them were probably angelic visitors. If you weren't here for last week's message, and you think, what? You can get the tape. (laughs) But what is amazing is just how hospitable Abram is, not knowing it's the Lord. Later on, he no doubt finds out, but it's a great picture of Abraham chit-chatting with God, hanging out with the Lord, enjoying intimate fellowship. Stands up, runs out, and goes, Hey, can I cook you guys a meal? Runs in, Sarah, bake bread. And then he goes out and gets a, goat prepares it and sits down and has a great meal with the Lord. You know, I've always been intrigued, especially in the New Testament, just how much Jesus loved to eat. We see him at the Last Supper. We see him after the resurrection breaking fish and their disciples are eating with him. He said, of course, in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I'll come in and eat with (laughs) him. And what did he say to Zacchaeus? Hey, get down. I'm going to have lunch at your house today. That is because, as most of you are already familiar with, that food was considered a sacred thing by the Jews. To eat a meal was to exchange an intimate form of fellowship because the food nourishes you and it nourishes me and we become one. And just the idea of Abram, who is called in the Bible, the friend of God, intimately sharing a meal with God, chit-chatting. I love that. I hope that the Lord to you is more than this distant, far off, awesome, austere figure. That he is Abba, Daddy, Father. I like to tell stories about little children. One of my favorite is the little girl who said her evening prayers. Her prayers were taking a lot longer than usual. Finally, her mother came in and said, What on earth are you doing? She said, Oh, nothing. I'm just sitting here telling Jesus I love him, and he's telling me that he loves me, and we're just loving each other. Beautiful picture of a Christian abiding in Christ, having that warm and intimate fellowship. But let's get into the, uh, the intercession of Abraham. Then the men rose up from there and looked toward Sodom, And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness, justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. You're going to watch Abraham praying for Sodom, a wicked city. And God is saying, hmm, how much should I convey to Abraham? I'm going to use him. I'm going to bless him. He's going to be an important figure throughout history. How much should I reveal to him? And as God reveals his ways of judgment to Abraham, Abraham will be moving in quickly to intercede on behalf of a wicked city. You know, as I read this, I thought, the wicked really owe a lot to the godly. It is because of the godly that the wicked are not consumed. It's because of the presence of God's people that the world isn't swept away. One day, the godly will be removed, and God's judgment will reign upon the earth. It's a scriptural principle. It was because of Jacob tending the flocks of Laban that God blessed and multiplied the flocks of Laban. Potiphar was blessed and he prospered because Joseph was the caretaker of his home. The people on the boat in the New Testament, Acts 27, were kept alive because Paul the Apostle was going to Rome and God spared their lives and even gave him a prophecy and the angels of God were there to protect him. And the wicked really owe a lot to the righteous who prevail for their cities and their countries and their governments in prayer. And yet, they won't appreciate it. They'll see you as the problem, you as the menace, but you just hang in there and you intercede for them. In fact, God is looking for intercessors. The book of Isaiah, I think he says, And I wondered why I found no intercessor, someone to stand in the gap. God is looking for prayer warriors for this country. And I'll tell you what, you know we need it. We need prayers. Paul the Apostle said, I would first of all that prayers and supplications and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, rulers, all who are in authority, that you may live a quiet and peaceable life. Samuel to the children of Israel said, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you. Interesting concept. Far be it that I would sin against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you. God's looking for intercessors, prayer warriors, to stand in the gap for families, nations, and this planet. Now, back to verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness, justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, then I will know. Important principles brought up. God says, How much should I reveal? We have partial knowledge, folks. We do not see everything. Now, there's a lot we do see because of the lens of the Scripture. God's will is revealed to us, but we don't know it all. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do the works or all of the word of the Lord. God has revealed to us part of his plan, but not all of it. Now, a lot of times you wonder at the plan of God and you question it. Why did God allow that to happen? And Abraham is going to be wondering that. Now, why would you overthrow the righteous with the wicked? I thought the judge of all the earth was to do right. And how often have we questioned God with questions like, why? How come? You don't have all the answers and God doesn't owe you an explanation. You're to trust him. The judge of the earth will do right. No question. Every now and then somebody will say, God's been good to me. And I know what he means by that. He means that this person is experiencing the goodness of God. Truth is, God's good to everyone. God isn't half good and half bad. He's always good. He's always just. God knows what he's doing. We don't always. Job. He experienced the trials, but he did not see into the spiritual realm, the conversation between God and Satan. And when he suffered what he suffered, he didn't understand that there was something going on in the unseen world, and he was being played as part of that conversation. And so Job's wife comes to him after all of the devastation and the disease, and she says, curse God and die. Thank you. Encouraging word. (laughs) Wouldn't want a prayer partner like that. Just curse God and die. I and mean, give it up. Look what's happened. And Job did not curse God nor char- charge God foolishly. But he said something very interesting. He said, shall we accept good from God only and not evil? Shall we only say, oh, hey, God's in this. It's all good. Shall we only accept good and not evil? Hey, I don't know what's happening, woman, but I'm not going to curse God. He knows. He's in heaven. And what he has revealed, good enough. Verse 19, actually, in all of this, we are seeing insight into the mind of God. These are God's thoughts toward his servant. Ever think what God thinks about you? Ever think, I wonder what kind of thoughts are bouncing around God's mind about me. And yeah, I know God loves me. I guess he has to. He's God. But I wonder if he likes me. <laughs> and I refer you to Jeremiah 29 sometime. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, not of calamity. My thoughts are good toward you. They're gracious toward you. And he has gracious thoughts toward Abraham. For I have known him, notice, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. The plan that God had for Abraham was twofold. He had a public plan that he would be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus Christ would eventually come from his lineage. But secondly, for his family, it was a personal plan. That he would model the truth of God to his kids. That was God's plan for him. It is always the responsibility of parents to communicate truth to the next generation. And it's always tragic when the next generation doesn't see the truth of God from mom and dad. Now every now and then parents will, as their children get a little older, start thinking, Oh, you know what? Boy, look at him. He's getting old and he's picking up some of these bad habits. You know, honey, I think it's time we go to church. We need to send these kids to Sunday school. They need to get morals. They need to get truth. They need to walk right. And so often they'll come, bring their kids to Sunday school, but if truth is not modeled in the home, it won't be adequately communicated. If you say, well, it's up to the Sunday school, they're supposed to give them all these things. Failure of the church today. They're not training our kids or Christian schools. No, it's the failure of parents to adequately communicate the truth to the next generation. And according to God, Abraham was to model it. All right. Verse 20, the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether, according to the outcry against it, that it has come to me, and if not, I will know. Verse 20 is in one sense frightening. Because it means that not one ounce of wickedness goes unseen by God. He sees it all. He knows it all. He hears the cries. When Cain killed Abel, what did God say? He said, where's your brother? Behold, the blood of your brother is crying to me from the ground. In the book of James... By way of example James says, the wages that your workers earn that you have not paid them who mowed your fields are crying out unto the Lord of the Sabbath. Wickedness, all of it, every thought is perused and seen and observed, taken note of by the Almighty. I will go down now and see. You know, God hates sin, but he always makes a thorough evaluation before he judges. He never just flies off the handle and panics. Okay, I've had enough. Boom, smoke you. (laughs) The idea here, written in anthropomorphic terms so we can understand them, is that God makes a complete evaluation before he judges, which we had to take an example of. Because we're prone to judge without getting a full account. And Proverbs 18 says that he who hears a matter or he who judges a matter before he hears all of it is a fool. It is a folly and a shame to him. So next time you hear gossip and somebody tells you something about sister so-and-so and and you go, oh, really? And you start judging. You're a fool. The best thing for you to do is tell that person, "Um, what's your name? Can I quote you on that? And then go to sister so-and-so and say, listen, this person brought this to my attention. Is that so? Is this something I can help you with? Hear the whole matter. Well, let me tell you the whole thing. Oh, I see. Now I understand. God is checking out Sodom and Gomorrah prior to the judgment. And the men turned away from there, verse 22, and went toward Sodom. And Abraham stood still, or still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near. This <laughs> is a great part. Listen to this question. And said... Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? What's the answer to that? No, he would not. And we'll go on and we'll see how that develops. Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 that were in it? far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Now he recognized something essential about the character of God, that God is just, God is righteous, and God makes a difference when he judges. He knew that. He knew the character of God, and there's a secret to effective prayer. True prayer that is effective is always based upon the revelation of who God is. See, this is what he knew about God, and based upon what he knew about God, his character, he made his prayer. So often we pray a lot differently. We imagine that prayer is getting ourselves out on a limb so far, and then begging God not to let anybody cut it off. But true prayer is based upon the character of God revealed in the Word of God. He knew that God was judge of all the earth, that he was right, and he knew that God wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And true to form, the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare all the place for their sakes. Hmm. Imagine, you get 50 in that whole city. I'll spare the whole city. And Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there 45, I will not destroy it. Then he spoke to him yet again and said, "Uh, Suppose there were 40 found there. He said, I would not do it for the sake of 40. And he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Indeed now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 would be found there. He said, I would not destroy it for the sake of 20. And he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. Now it would sound like they're arguing almost. It sounds like uh, Abram, Abraham is kind of backing God into a corner, twisting his arm a little bit, buttering him up. But that's not the case at all. By the way, why do you stop at ten? He didn't want to press it. He knew he couldn't find more than ten. I mean, Lot was borderline. And God, in his grace and mercy, would spare Lot and his family. And he thought, okay, Lot, his wife, okay, the girls, their fiancés, okay, maybe the dog, the cat, but no more than ten. <laughs> I'm pressing it at that. See, he's thinking of his nephew, Lot, as he's interceding for the city, Sodom and Gomorrah. His boldness is noteworthy, and you and I ought to take note of it. Don't come before the Lord in fear. Come before the Lord boldly. That doesn't mean pridefully. It means in humility. But none of this nonsense, Well, I'm not worthy to pray. God knows that. You're not worthy to pray. But God gave you Jesus who died on a cross and by his blood gave you access into the holy of holies. And so the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, come boldly before his throne that you might receive grace to help in the nick of time, literally. So he came boldly before the Lord and started interceding for Lot. But verse 33 says, The Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. Notice how that is phrased. It does not say that Abraham left when he was done conning God into the tent. God was finished speaking with Abraham, and then he dismissed Abraham. The implication inherent in that verse is that Abraham was not conning God into ten, but that God was initiating this prayer from the beginning. And he was leading Abraham along to intercede for this city, thinking, how much should I reveal? Well, I'll reveal enough to arouse his attention, to burden his heart enough to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah, because I want to be merciful anyway. That's in my plan all the way along, is to spare the righteous and judge only the wicked. That's what I want to do. But, I'm going to let Abraham know that, so his heart will be touched, he'll be burdened, and he'll pray for it, and we'll cooperate on the thing together. And there's a beautiful lesson of prayer there. One of the purposes of prayer is cooperation. God doesn't need your prayers, but God has given you graciously a means by which you can cooperate with the will of God. And so a burden is laid upon your heart. And you start praying for a person, or for an event, or for a need, and you are co-laboring with Christ. An example is my son. He's at an age where he wants to help Dad. Now, when I'm working out in the garage, working on a car, or trying to fix a lawnmower or something, you're going to say, Dad, I'm going to help you. Immediately I think, okay. <laughs> now, if he helps me, it will take twice as long. It's a lot easier for me to do it. He doesn't know how to handle these tools. He's inept at trying to get this wrench and put it in there and drain this oil or or put on this part. He can't do it. But he wants to learn, and it's important that he feels he's cooperating with me. Because if I don't teach him, he'll never learn. He says, Dad, I'm going to help. Great, I wanted you to help all along. Now, what I need you to do, and I'll tell him this little bit of job, and oh, now his heart's touched. He wants to get involved. And when the whole thing's done, he goes, oh, Man, I did a good job, didn't I? <laughs> oh, Nathan, you did a fabulous job. And he thinks he really did a, he had a large part in this. The same feeling you and I must get when you see an answer prayer. All right, I prayed for that. God answered it. <laughs> God's saying, Yeah, good little boy. That's great. Good job, man. Ooh, you really prayed on that one. Good, all right. God did it. He just let you cooperate with it, and somehow your heart was touched by the need because God loves his children co-laboring with Christ. He loves you involved. Part of the reason for prayer is partnership so that you can be a partner with Christ and with the Lord as he does his work. And So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Before we move on into the next chapter and cover it, notice that his prayer was definite. It was not vague. And I always bring that up when we go through biblical prayers because it's one of the hallmarks of biblical praying, communicating with God. Prayers in the Bible were never vague. They were definite. He did not say, Lord, we pray for the soul nearest hell. Or we pray for all of the missionaries worldwide. He narrowed it down and got really specific He had a request upon his heart that he brought before God. The next thing about his prayer, it was reverent. It was not prideful. He said, I'm going to speak to you, but I'm just dust and ashes. A far cry from some of the prideful prayers of people who claim certain rights before God. Now I'm a child of God and I claim it and I demand it. Hey, you're uh, talking to God the creator of heaven and earth, and you're but dust and ashes. And read the approach of the people who were really used by God and great emissaries of God in the Bible, and you find that they all approach God humbly. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and I said, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It was reverent. The awe, the fear of God was built into this prayer. And then, as we already said, it was based upon the character of God mixed with faith. All right. Now, the two angels came, verse 1 of chapter 19, to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now, there's a contrast that, again, I want you to see between Abraham and Lot. Very different, just in the few chapters that we have read so far. Abraham was dwelling near the trees of, what was it called? Mamre, which meant fatness, blessing, or fellowship. Lot was in Sodom. Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent as the Lord visited him. Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate is not like a little gate that goes back and forth. It's a building. It's a structure. Usually it was cut at different corners so that people had to stop and slow down. And the gate of the city had benches that lined it. And the judges, the elders, the rulers of the city would go out every morning and sit at the gate of the city and make judgments. It was the court. The jurisprudence system took place outside at the gate of the city. There was a problem, a dispute. You bring it to the elders who sat at the gate. Most of the men in the ancient times would get up, Go out to the gate of the city because that was also the place where the newspaper was. You would tell each other the news. Hey, did you hear what's happening over in Zoar? Really? Yeah, and Abraham up there looking at us over that cliff, talking with those three. They got news that way. It was the center of town. The women would go out and work in the fields, milk the animals, shear the sheep, till the ground, and the men would do, of course, in those days, the important job sitting at the gate of the city. And, finding out the news. and That's how the culture was in those days. So Lot wasn't out getting a job somewhere. He was sitting down at the gate of the city because he was a ruler, one of the rulers of the city of Sodom. Another thing that you can see a contrast is that when the Lord visits Abraham, in chapter 18 we read that Abraham hurried to his feet, made haste, and ran to greet these characters. When they come to Sodom, Lot arose to meet them, but there was no hurry in his pace, nothing pressing, all right, God's here. No real haste from this angelic visitation. Another thing to contrast is that Abraham hurried to make them a meal. And he said to Sarah, hey, bake your bread, and while you're baking bread, I'll go get a goat. It'll be a joint venture. Lot prepares a meal himself. His wife isn't involved which would indicate that they're really not behind this whole idea of leaving Sodom after all. Her heart is wedded to Sodom. She doesn't want to leave. As evidence is, she looks back longingly for the city. All right, he's sitting in the gate. He rose to meet him, bowed himself to the face toward the ground, common gesture of hospitality, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house. And spend the night and wash your feet. By the way, we always bring up first mentions in the Bible. This is the first time house is mentioned. And again, a contrast. Abraham, though very rich, 318 armed servants, lived in a tent. Lot lived in a house. He wanted the city life. Abraham was a pilgrim, a sojourner. He just wherever God wants me. That's not to say that you should live in a house. Because he was living in Sodom, in this house... Because he was so attracted by the ungodly lifestyle. Hey, there's a lot more to do in Sodom than out here on the plains. What, What do you do here, Abraham? I mean, I want to have some fun. And down there, there's a lot of glitz and glamour and entertainment. And so he moved for the wrong reasons there. So spend the night, wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast, baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they laid down, all the men of the city of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. NIV says that we may have sex with them. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, and notice how he addresses these wicked people, my brothers. Do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason that they have come under the shadow of my roof. Lot is an example of someone who was so carnal, so half-hearted. He was saved out of that city barely. But it's an example of a scripture in 1 Corinthians that I think we need to apply to our lives as we live and serve the Lord. You can turn there if you want. If not, I'll read it to you. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think of Lot when I read this. He's a perfect example, unfortunately, of this text. Verse 11 tells us, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw... Each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. It is through the fire. Lot is a great example of that. The foundation for his Relationship with God was already laid, but he—that what he built upon, this wood, hay, and stubble, burned up in the judgment. He lost absolutely everything he longed for and planned for in his life. The only thing that was saved was his life. God mercifully preserved him. Because he was half-hearted, he did not build a righteous life of communication and fellowship with God. His eyes were after the wrong thing, and the results, as you see in this chapter are horrible results. Um, all right. Look at verse 5. The men of the city come, and they said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we might have sexual relationships with them. Because of this verse and other verses in the scripture that so plainly denounce homosexuality, Now, I've got I to underscore something. The last two Bible studies, I'm not deliberately picking on homosexuals. In fact, we never pick on any one topic or any one hobby horse. We teach through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Whatever we happen to hit, that's what we touch on. Whether it's the family, it's marriage, it's commitment, it's salvation. Whatever the scripture unfolds, that's what we'd unfold. And it just happened that Thursday night was Jude verse 7. If you're not familiar with that, you might want to read it. How God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because of their lust after other flesh, strange flesh. And tonight we happen to be covering this. But because of this text and other texts which blatantly condemn the sin of homosexuality. And because there are groups of people who would want to call themselves Christians, yet not repent of a homosexual lifestyle there has been a reinterpretation of biblical texts to accommodate the lifestyle. Instead of saying, this is truth, this is error, I want to change this to accommodate me, instead of changing me, by God's grace, to obey God. And so man is making God in his own image, rather than letting God make the man after the image of Christ. And because the frog in the kettle syndrome is happening... We see the erosion of the moral fabric. It is becoming more acceptable. And people say, well, hey, I'll go for it. Back in 1955, a guy by the name of D. Sherwin Bailey wrote a book. And he sort of spearheaded this whole gay rights movement. And he started reinterpreting biblical texts, and he hit first the 19th chapter of Genesis. And he said, the reason, (laughs) it's a ridiculous explanation. The reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and called them wicked was not because of the men who tried to have sexual relations, but it's because the men of Sodom and Gomorrah had forsaken the grace of hospitality. They were not hospitable to these men. They didn't extend the common courtesy of hospitality. You mean to tell me, that you're going to serve a God who, because you didn't shake their hand and wash their feet, he's going to wipe out the whole city? That's the explanation. And what about all of the other texts, Leviticus, Numbers, 1 Corinthians, that plainly denounce homosexuality and say, says thieves, adulterers, homosexual offenders will never inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are practicing those lawless deeds as a habit of lifestyle will never enter the kingdom of God. And what he does is he reinterprets those texts, saying, it's not that God is denouncing homosexuality. In fact, God is denouncing promiscuous homosexuality. It's okay, just do it with one partner. Don't spread yourself out. It's the promiscuity that God is denouncing. Because he was seeking to accommodate what he saw happening as a trend in the country and started shaping God after his own image. Then there was a guy by the name of Troy Perry who founded, actually he was an ex-Pentecostal minister, founded a church called the Metropolitan Community Church, a church that uh, caters toward the gay lifestyle. Let me find it. find it. Had a quote. Let's go on. So he says, See, now I have two daughters. You can do whatever you want to them. And notice what they said. Stand back. And then they said, This one came into sojourn, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. Now, Lot had followed the customs of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had lost the moral fabric himself, and he was willing to give his own daughters to these offenders rather than let these men be harmed. Do not fault God for what you just read, saying, well, see, the Bible demeans women. No, the cultures of those days pushed women down. The culture of Sodom and Gomorrah and many of the Semitic countries made women objects rather than helpmates and persons. That was not God's original intent. From the beginning, God said he made a a male and a female to be comparable, a woman to be comparable to the man, to be protected, to be one with him, not to be an object. It was never God's intention. Cultures still today, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, subjugate the role of the woman to the man making her an object. Not really that important. And to Lot, like the custom of Sodom, hospitality toward these strangers was a higher virtue than protecting his own daughters. Christianity elevates the position of a woman. Don't you dare say that God is a male chauvinist. It was Jesus Christ that liberated the women. The New Testament liberated the women because in the culture of that day, the Greek culture, women were nothing. But Paul said, male and female, there's no distinction. And a husband ought to love and cherish and nurture his wife. Not throw her out and divorce her at any kind of a whim. In fact, for a Christian, the relationships are put at a higher, more accountable plane than any other culture. That's why in the scripture, divorce for a Christian is like a big no-no. Even more so than an unbeliever because to whom much is given, much is required. You're on a high standard to love and cherish and nurture that woman. So don't blame God for some of these things. God's just honest enough to to record uh, the truth of how these men treated their wives. But the men reached out, verse 10, their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they became weary of trying to find the door. And the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law your uh, sons-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because of the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, some versions say who were about to marry his daughters. Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city But to his sons in law, he seemed to be joking. For an unbeliever, spiritual truth is hard to receive. And Lot had blown his witness, and there was no spiritual power in him anyway. His life, he was so compromised anyway. It's like, what, are you joking with me? You're preaching to me? Look at you. He had no power at all. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, interesting, while he lingered. Get out, was the message. But he lingered. Oh, this is home, man. This is what I've always wanted. The men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of the two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them outside... That he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Lot said to them, please, no, my lords. What? God's being gracious to you and you're arguing with the angels? Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. and You have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near. This guy likes the city, doesn't he? Near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please help me escape there. Is it not a little one? My soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, so that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Mark that. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. It's an important verse of Scripture that tells us an important principle about the nature and character of God, and that is in judgment he makes a difference between a believer and a non-believer. When the hailstones fell upon the enemies of Israel in the book of Joshua, supernaturally they only killed the enemies of Israel who were in the same battlefield with the children of Israel, but it miraculously did not strike any of the children of Israel because God was aiming them. It wasn't just like a hailstorm. It was like, whoosh. He made a difference. When God destroyed the world by water and the flood, he spared Noah and his eight sons. And there was a difference. 2 Peter tells us that using both of these examples, God knows how to deliver the godly from judgment and reserve the judgment for the ungodly. That is part of God's pattern that will never change. In the future, there will come upon this earth, according to the Scriptures, a time unparalleled in human history. It will not just be a little trial or a heartache or a bad circumstance. It will be the judgment from God upon this world. It's called the Great Tribulation. Now I got to admit something to you. All of us face tribulation, Christian and non-Christian. We're not exempt from the common everyday tribulations. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. You'll have it. But the source of the tribulation that you face now comes from the world and often from the devil toward you as a Christian. Plus it's the common lot of every human being because of the fall of man and the fall of this world and the corrupt human nature. The sun, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. However, in the great tribulation, the source will not be from the world or from the devil. The source of judgment and tribulation comes from God. And according to God's nature, he will remove the righteous before he judges the wicked. To deny that denies the very fabric of the character and nature of God. He's always done it. When the source comes from him, he will preserve now lot wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination yet in the book of second peter because of god's grace and the lens of god's grace he's called righteous and i read that i went what see the foundation was laid he built upon it with wood hay and stubble and it was lost he was saved as though by fire but he was preserved And God saved him, as wicked as he was. Picture of a carnal believer. Saved nonetheless, but what a miserable life. True to the nature of God, he preserved him. The Lord Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew the cities of the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now, an archaeologist did some research a few years ago, went down to the area and said that he uncovered archaeological the ruins of Zoar, Zeboim, uh, Sodom, Gomorrah, and uh, Admah. He found that because of the silt deposits in the northern tip of the Dead Sea that the water so encroached upon these southern cities of the plain that they were just overthrown the ruins of by water eventually. But he's found some subterraneously. The whole area he discovered is... An oil and pitch bed, and that there is evidence in the surface of the earth of a great explosion, according to him, that once occurred. This, some kind of gas ignited underneath and uh, blew the pitch and the sulfur up into the sky, uh, which we call brimstone. And probably Lot's wife, looking back, wasn't just like, she could have just been instantly turned to salt, we don't know, but probably was showered as judgment upon her with this pitch, this bitumen and the oil that landed upon her and crusted her with salt. And it says when she looked back, it means looked wistfully, lingeringly, hopefully. Oh, my home, Sodom. You know, she was a member of the country club and the sewing club and all. It was her home. (laughs) Even though God was going to judge it, that was home. And she looked back toward it. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Wow. What did Lot lose? Everything. Family. You'll see in the next few verses. Integrity. Home. What did Abraham lose? Not a thing. He even got a good night's sleep. Got up in the morning in communion with God. He had prayed to God. God answered his prayer. And he saw God judging Sodom and Gomorrah. But he knew that God would spare the ten. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, and he overthrew the cities which Lot had dwelt. Lot went up out of Zoar, dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. What a great life. Got everything he wanted, now he's in a cave. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's no man on the earth to come into us, as the custom is in all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drunk with wine that night, and the firstborn went in, lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, "Indeed, I will lay with my father. I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father." So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger arose and lay with him, but he did not know when she lay down or when she arose, that both, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child or pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. You can identify it behind me on the map. Had always been an enemy of Israel uh, from, well, all throughout its history. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. We can comment a little more on this next week. But suffice it to say, what a contrast. Abraham, a blessed life. Lot, a blasted life. Abraham, blessed by God, in communion with God, following God's plan and purpose. Lot, seeing all the glitter and the glamour of the world, the life of Sodom, pitched his tent toward Sodom, longed for all of those worldly things. It's the kind of a person who says, Well, I want to follow God, but I want all of the pleasure of the world at the same time. You can't have them. You can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You'll follow one and despise the other, Jesus said. More and more, this world is trying to make you into a lot. The world loves Lot. Loves you to be like Lot. Loves you to dwell among them and just tolerate their lifestyle and think, Hey, it's no big deal. It's an alternate me. Hey, everybody's into it. I don't want to be too harsh and judgmental. In fact, I might indulge a little bit in worldly activities. And I can still call myself a Christian. The world will accept you and love you. But you'll be miserable and you'll lose it all. Or you can dare to be like Abraham, who walks in fellowship with God. He's on a whole different plane, but he's dwelling with God and he's satisfied. You can have eternal and abundant life. Makes more sense to live like Abraham, doesn't it? The choice is pretty clear. Father, we think tonight in our own lives... those places of frustration, those times where we've lacked your fellowship and your presence. And some, Lord, are here tonight who are in that place like Lot. They've chased their dreams, and yet there's leanness to their soul. They've never found a real relationship with a living God through Jesus Christ and they're tired of being sick and tired. And I pray that tonight, Lord, as right now they're contemplating their future and their life, that you would rescue them, Father, and bring them to yourself. And as you continue right now in an attitude of prayer and silence before the Lord, I'm going to give you an invitation. Perhaps you've never really made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and tonight you're tired of living that frustrated lifestyle, and you want meaning, purpose, direction, and forgiveness, then I'd like to invite you to come to know Jesus Christ. And if you'd like me to pray for you, you want to make a commitment to Jesus tonight, a real life-changing commitment to walk with Him, then I'd like you right now to raise your hand up in the air, and I'll acknowledge it as we close in prayer this evening. And I'll pray for you before we close this meeting. Raise up your hand if you tonight have decided and decide right now to follow Jesus. Turn from the sin and follow him. Just keep your hand up. God bless you toward the back. Anyone else? You want to turn around tonight and make some changes. God bless you and you toward the back. Anyone else? Over here on the side. A couple of you toward the back. God's speaking to hearts around this auditorium. Don't close the door to the voice of the Spirit speaking to you right now. God's prompting you to make a decision to follow Him, then you respond right now by raising up your hand. Anyone else? Right up here in the front. God bless you. Right on. God bless you, buddy. Right over there. You can put your hands down now. Father, we pray from the depths of our hearts that this hand would be more than just a hand, but it would indicate a heart that's changing and deciding to turn toward you by faith in repentance. Lord, we pray that you would invade the life as they come now to devote themselves and make their commitment to Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.